The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. As a member of the PQ and the Sovereignist, I see no contradiction in a deficit-cutting policy for Quebec. Especially when starting a new nation, it is like starting a new business. You need to show the bank that you can balance the books. I'm here in Toronto to let Mike Harris know that when we do business together, he's dealing with a fiscally responsible partner. Well, Linda McQuaig, I think you want the last word. I can only imagine René Levesque just turned over in his grave. Uh, all right, we only have a few seconds left, but I'd like to respond to Linda. I guess I have to take exception to that comment about René Levesque, a Quebec premier who fought to keep Canada together and who died only recently after devoting his life to Quebec politics. I think to say that no, he turned... No, no, you're thinking of Barassa, Barassa, who died recently and fought to keep this country together. Monsieur Levesque, who fought for separation, uh, died in 1987. Yeah, of course, I, I misspoke. Of course, I meant Mr. Barassa. Um, but here's a man, I think, who's still very much alive in the hearts and minds of Quebecers and Canadians everywhere. I think to say that Barassa turned over in his grave does a disservice to his memory, don't I said Levesque. I'm sorry? Levesque turned over in his grave. <laughs> okay, that's an edit. That's an edit. Linda, could you give me that lead-in line again about uh, René Levesque turning over in his grave? All right? Then I'll take it from there. I, I said that spontaneously. You you you're going to try and script that? I mean, uh, that? That's ridiculous. Fine. Fine, I can do it. I can do it. <clears throat> Ready? Well, in response to Lise Leger, I can only imagine René Levesque just turned over in his grave. That's all the time we have. Lise Leger from Quebec City, Linda McQuaig from Toronto. Thank you for being with us. God, what a moron that guy is. An incredible idiot. I find him very appealing. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May 14th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. And yes, today marks the 400th weekly broadcast of Just Right on CHRW Radio, which debuted here on CHRW back on Thursday, April the 19th, 2007. You'll find all 400 broadcasts archived online on our website, justrightmedia.org, where you'll also find much more, including video productions and other features of interest. Now, in order to celebrate this milestone in radio broadcasting, we have no plans to do a best-of broadcast. We have no plans to review our list of guests over the past eight years plus. We have no plans to talk about our favorite shows and no plans to talk about our growing audience. Instead, we're going to celebrate by answering the questions... What and why? Why do Robert and I bother to expend the effort in bringing a show like Just Right to the airwaves? And what do we expect to accomplish by the effort? After all, you already know the who and the when and the where, but what's the what and the why? You know that this show even exists, Robert, was an accident of circumstance and history beginning way back on September 10th, 1997, when I was invited to appear weekly on Jim Chapman's Wednesday morning editions of his own show in a feature called Left, Right and Center. 
It was broadcast on CJBK AM radio here in London and featured myself on the right, host Jim Chapman in the centre and London lawyer Jeff Schlemmer on the left. All 218 broadcasts that we have in our possession are available online, again on Just Right's site. Look for the link at the bottom of the bars on the right of the home page. And as strange as it might sound, we three had... A great on-air chemistry, given our differing positions, and over the years at CJBK, there were often differing hosts of the feature, including names like Tom Gosnell, Jack Burkhart, Tom McConnell, Dan Gall, and others, while on the left there were also many others appearing, most notably Marion Boyd, who appeared almost as frequently as Jeff Schlemmer for the left. Gil Warren and Susan Eagle also made more than a few appearances for the left. Now, Left, Right, and Center continued on CJBK until June 23, 2004, when Jim's contract was not renewed by the station. He later moved his talk show here to CHRW Radio, where he resurrected the, the Left, Right, and Center segment again on January 11, 2006, again with the same participants. We still have to post, and I'm feeling guilty about this, Robert, <laughs> those Left, Right, and Center broadcasts number 219 to 270 on our site. The ones a lot of that work. Were, yeah, the ones that were done here at CHRW. And we've been promising to do so for like years and years now. <laughs> uh, Jim took a sabbatical from broadcasting in the spring of 2007 in order to run as a provincial candidate for the Ontario PCs. And so the last broadcast of Left, Right, and Center aired here on C- CHRW on Wednesday, April 12th, only eight days before the debut of Just Right in the following week. And it's been Just Right here on CHRW ever since. Now, Robert and I are just volunteers, and what continues to surprise us as we do this show is that we seem to be filling a very unique niche market for which there's no other competitor to really be found, at least that's widely known to us. And yet there seems to be a demand out there for the kind of programming that we're doing. So as I asked earlier, why do we do this? And to explore one very important fact or factor in answering that, I must once again thank Jim Chapman for providing the opportunity to kick off our theme today, just as I'm indebted to him for having opened the doors that eventually led down the hallway to CHRW and Just Right. Jim is still writing monthly for London Business, and the following essay that I found uh, actually appeared in this month's edition, and it was very to the point of what we do here on this show, and the title of it was Measured Truths, Media Bias Alive and Well, and it appeared in London Business uh, in the May edition. And he, he, he wrote the following. I thought this was very interesting for a commentary to kick off today's, today's discussion, Robert. And Jim writes, I quote, A question from a friend the other day got me to thinking about the role of the news media in our society. What do you think about newspapers favoring certain candidates come election time, he was asked. Not much, he writes, actually. In the heyday of the newspapers, most larger publications owed their success to their overt political stances because people tend to feel more comfortable with reporting than res- with reporting that resonates with their worldview. That's still easily seen in papers like The Sun and Star and National Post, where in spite of including a mi- more diverse set of voices than might have been the case historically, The central political positions of the paper are easily seen by anyone who cares to look. Regular readers generally get what they're looking for in support of their preferences or prejudices. Most TV news viewers gravitate to resonant messages on television as well. See, there's that gravity again, Robert. (laughs) Fox News watchers would not likely flip back and forth to MSNBC, for example, and the same goes for most followers of news and political blogs and podcasts. 
Now, here's the key, I think, to, to Jim's argument. I believe this separation in news reporting has done a great disservice to the body politic. Instead of looking for the objective truth, admittedly sometimes a difficult thing to find, much of the industry is more interested in putting whatever slant on the news is judged to be best for the financial future of the company. People lead busy lives and few among us have much time to spare following the mostly boring machinations of the political process. It's only when our feelings are aroused by some particular issue that we come fully aware to look for, for more information. If what we find fits our preconceptions, we can bolster our inherent prejudices and be reassured our opinion is the correct one. Unscrupulous politicians manipulate people by telling them what they want to hear, and those of us suspicious of the ease with which that can be converted to votes are always wary of, trust me, I know what I'm talking about types in general. In addition to political reporting, the airwaves are full of experts commenting on just about anything you can imagine. But even a casual observer can quickly see that it's mostly so-called opinion makers talking to other so-called opinion makers and contains precious little real news. There isn't much time for nuance it having fallen victim to the 10-second soundbite, and the term content has come to be interchangeable with filler, measured not by the amount of useful discourse it shares or generates, but by ma how many seconds it can eat up until the next round of commercials. It can take a great deal of work to assemble the information needed to make a rational assessment of an issue before the public. Tell me about it, eh, mm, Robert? Yes, indeed. For the people, it's simply not worth the effort, and they sail merrily along on a sea of blissful ignorance guided by their emotions and intuition and disinterested in questioning either. Then he says, I wish there was a way to deliver real, insightful, objective stories based on the most comprehensive set of facts available so we can easily formulate our own thoughts without being manipulated by expert or public opinion. We just might be able to move news reporting in dire that direction if enough people insisted upon it. But as long as we continue to accept opinion as news and feelings as fact, the media will continue to deliver opinions and feelings instead of the tough truths that we need. And that was Jim's commentary. You know, in many ways, I think that just right fits the order for what Jim Chapman's looking for. He's completely right when he says that assembling the information needed to make a rational assessment before the public is a lot of effort. And that effort and broader perspective is something that I think that uh, Robert and I are offering to our listeners. But one broadcast per week, of course, can't compete with the daily barrage of the 10-second sound bites found on most other radio stations. But doing what we do on Just Right is not the function nor the purpose of the daily radio media, who by simple virtue of the fact that they react and report news and events as they're happening, they're not in the position to offer a rational big-picture assessment of an event that may still be in process. So interesting, <clears throat> you know, t to talk about what we're looking at in terms of what's news. Uh, you know, I always thought, Robert, I mentioned this to you, I really think the National Post should change its name to the Daily Planet. Because <laughs> 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 yeah. that way it'd fit better into the celestial array of major news reporting in this country. We'd have the sun, the star, and the Daily Planet. And what did you say? You said something about the moon. You said something lunar. Oh, <laughs> no, I was just <laughs> trying to play on the same theme. Yeah. It fell. Flat. But, you know, news is just the word new with an S added to it. It's the plural of new. Felt flatter than Elizabeth May's speech. Oh, <laughs> that's right. But news is the plural of new, quite literally. You know, people say, so what's new? And that's simply a way of asking someone to tell you what you haven't heard about before or don't already knew? know. <laughs> new is future knowledge or information. No is the past tense of new. 
And just for how long can something be considered new? For a split second, that second between not knowing and knowing? Sometimes a so-called new fad, technological advance, or TV show continues to be called new until it just isn't anymore, perhaps when a given market becomes saturated with the information or technology. As to news, besides having to be something new, to be considered news, I think it also has to represent some kind of change, a difference of some sort, an actual event in space-time. Otherwise, if something didn't change, if you had chaos every day, that wouldn't be news anymore. But if suddenly the chaos ended, that would be news. But if you had peace every day, that wouldn't be news anymore. But suddenly if you had chaos, that would be news, <laughs> right? So the news represents a change in the switch. And unlike news or information, truth is in the philosophy department, as they say, not in the news or research department, which is not to say that truth can't be found there. The one thing that both truth and fact have in common, and the only thing, I think, is that in order to be objectively, factually, truthfully considered to be a fact or truth, it has to correspond to some accurate appraisal of reality, and that one's appraisal of reality must be based on reason. There are no other secret formulas for arriving at the truth. Now, it's interesting, you know, a truth is something considered generally eternal and applies to a variety of facts and circumstances on a universal basis. Experts are at best advisors, not authority, explains Alex Epstein in his book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which is one of those issues, you know. He explains that we need experts to, to explain to us how they reached a conclusion and make sure they're not overstepping the bounds of their knowledge, which is incredibly common. He notes that no scientist is an expert on everything. Each specializes in some particular field. For example, a climate scientist might be a special specialist in paleoclimatology, the study of using ancient evidence to deduce what ancient climates were like. And even then, he might be an expert in only one period, say the Cretaceous, one of the periods in which the dinosaurs lived. He is not going to be an expert in climate physics, and the climate physicist is also not an expert in human adaptations. Epstein emphasizes that everyone is a non-expert in many relevant issues. In this respect, we're all in the same boat, and to reach an informed opinion, we need to draw on the work of experts in many fields to interrelate them with one another and with our knowledge. Each of us is responsible for taking these steps, for doing his best to find the truth and to make the right decision. Treat experts not as authorities to be obeyed, but as advisors. An advisor is someone who knows more than you do about the specifics, but only knows part of what you need and can be wrong. What experts in specific fields give us is knowledge that we can integrate into a big picture assessment. Often the cause of bias is an unacknowledged assumption. For example, among those who disagree with catastrophic climate change predictions, it's common, a common assumption that it's impossible for man to have a catastrophic or even significant impact on climate, as if there's some preordained guarantee that we can't significantly affect the global climate system. Well, there isn't. Whether we are or not can't be known without first examining the evidence. On the other side of the issue, among those who agree with catastrophic climate predictions, it's a common assumption that there's something inherently wrong with man having an impact on climate. If you hold that assumption, you're likely to assume that the impact of man-made CO2 emissions is very negative, even if the evidence showed it was actually mild or even positive. We cannot assume things are good or bad, Hence the last issue, being clear on exactly what we mean by good and bad. And that's basically what this show's about. And he asks, what exactly do we mean by right and wrong, good and bad? What is our standard of value? 
by what standard or measure are we saying something is good or bad, great or catastrophic, right or wrong, moral or immoral? And he writes, I hold human life as a standard of value. I think that our fossil fuel use so far has been a moral choice because it has enabled billions of people to live longer and more fulfilling lives, and I think that the cuts proposed by the environmentalists of the 1970s were wrong because of all the death and suffering they would have inflicted on human beings. Not everyone holds human life as their standard of value, and people often argue that things are right or wrong for reasons other than the ways they benefit or harm human beings." End quote. Well, there you go. What goes around comes around, and we always, as human beings, find ourselves with a human axiom. There's no escape from having to face the polarity of right and wrong and making a choice. Even not choosing or not acting is always a choice in the light of knowledge. And that's why ignorance has been said to be bliss, which is simply an absence of fear or concern with one's own safety, which also may beg the question, do people really want to know more than they do? Knowledge, you know, of a problem or crisis or an, or an opportunity is the thing that motivates action, and action necessitates making a choice. And our conversation will continue and expand when we return. The liberal media bias is so clear that it's not worth arguing about. What I'd like to focus on instead Hang is on the just specific a favor. I don't think I can let you float an allegation like that and then pretend it's so well agreed upon that it's past debate. The media overwhelmingly voted for and is voting for Obama. I have a hunch this isn't going to be the last time I ask you this tonight, but any evidence for that? Yes. A survey conducted by the American Society of Newspaper Editors showed 61% stated that they were members of or shared the beliefs of the Democratic Party while 15% said that their beliefs were best supported by the Republican Party. Can I raise what I think is an interesting example of sure. something? In a race for the Kansas State Legislature, oh, the seriously? Democrat is an anti-gay, anti-abortion train conductor. Nope. Pardon me. The Republican is a train conductor and gay. No. Guys. Somebody's a train conductor, somebody's gay, and somebody's father is in the Klan. And what's that an example of? Elliot? Nothing. So. Taylor, back to your point and your 15-year-old survey. It doesn't seem to me that conservatives are having trouble gaining access to the airwaves. And the fact that the New York Times editorial board endorsed the president and not Governor Romney isn't of itself a sign of bias. When the governor said, I like to fire people, not only did you know exactly what he meant, but you agreed. And when the president said you didn't build that, not only did you know exactly what he meant, you know that's not what he said. The trees are the right height. The dog on the car roof, Eastwood at the convention. Okay. And while we're on the subject, ACN's star anchor is a Republican who spends an awful lot of airtime reporting stories about crazy Republicans being crazy. In fairness, he did anchor a report about a Democratic president committing war crimes, and that wasn't even true. Elephant in the room. Something that needs to be kept in mind. The entire world. Sorry, we're going to make an important call. Two big races in the U.S. Senate. ACN is projecting that in Ohio, Sherrod Brown, the Democratic incumbent, will be reelected, and Claire McCaskill, the Democrat from Missouri, will keep her seat as well. Elliot, what does that mean for the Senate? It's now mathematically impossible for the Republicans to take control of the Senate, even if Romney wins tonight and Paul Ryan becomes a tiebreaker. So we're projecting now that Harry Reid will stay in the majority leader's office. Taylor, uh, should the Democrats be sending the Tea Party a basket of mini muffins and a thank you card for that? 
<laughs> I think the Democrats have a lot of gift baskets to hand out. Chris Christie, the media. Okay. Oh, right. Hold the phone. I can feel warmth about to happen. What media are you talking about when you say media? Because there are a lot of us. ACN? Yes. Oh, well, please continue. I worked in the Romney press shop, and I can tell you that on average over the last six months, Newsnight did 14 negative stories about Republicans to every one negative hey, story about Democrats. Copy. If Republicans do 14 crazy things in a month, does that mean the unbiased thing to do would be for us to concoct 13 additional crazy Democrat stories? The left doesn't have a version of the Tea Party. What's OWS? There wasn't an OWS candidate on the ballot tonight. The left's crazy people hardly ever run for office, and when they do, they don't win. Who's Alan West to the left? Who's Joe Walsh or Michelle Bachman? A 14 to 1 ratio of negative stories, and your takeaway is that there's a problem with the storyteller. What are your thoughts about that, Taylor Warren? Cannot remember the question. Okay. Okay, Jane, we're coming to you. If I can jump in, there's another point, and I don't think it gets nearly enough discussion. Yeah, I have to cut you off yep. there and throw to Jane Barrow in our panel in Washington. Jane, the Republicans will control the House and the Democrats will control the Senate. A billion dollars later. Are we right back where we were? That's the question I want to put to we're our up. panel, Will. DC has the come. Five thirty back. It's after midnight now, and I feel like I can ask a question. Sure. I meant to Will. Yes. Who did you vote for today? You know I'm not answering that. Well, I thought you might, because you revealed your party affiliation on the air last year. I did. I, I identified myself as a Republican because I thought it was fair to give the viewer, given the commentary I was delivering. A commentary that ended with you calling the Tea Party the American Taliban. Yes. And in the body of the commentary, it was a blistering indictment of Republicans. Exactly the opposite. It was a blistering indictment of people who aren't Republicans. Well, who's to say who is and night, isn't? I did. I want to remind you, you asked me to pursue this area. I understand. And I'm wondering, with all respect, do you call yourself a Republican so you can make a claim to credibility when you attack the GOP? No, I call myself a Republican because I am one. I believe in market solutions and I believe in common sense realities and the necessity to defend ourselves against a dangerous world and that's about it. Problem is now I have to be homophobic. I have to count the number of times people go to church. I have to deny facts and think scientific research is a long con. I have to think poor people are getting a sweet ride. And I have to have such a stunning inferiority complex that I fear education and intellect in the 21st century. But most of all, the biggest new requirement, really, the only requirement, is that I have to hate Democrats. And I have to hate Chris Christie for not spitting on the president when he got off Air Force One. The two-party system is crucial to the whole operation. There's honor in being the loyal opposition, and I'm a Republican for the same reasons you are. So I hope your voice gets louder in the next four years. Well, I don't like losing, so count on it. You know, just jumping on top of that idea... I'm sorry, Sloan. We're going to go to Jane Barrow in Washington for an update on some West Coast House races. Plenty more coverage coming tonight. Jane? And clear. Are you doing it on purpose now? No, it's just working out unbelievably well. <laughs> it's unbelievably well. That was a really insightful piece there. They it really was. got into quite a debate. From the newsroom. Eh? Yeah, from the, uh, the 2012 uh, newsroom, the American version. And, uh, you know, it's so true, like what people are getting is news. You know, interesting, I saw uh, a, um, an article just this past week written by Gord Hume. You remember Gord Hume? Hume? Mm-hmm. Um, was once a, a counselor or a counselor and board of control here in the city. And he writes, um, on May 7th, Hume's London Viewpoint, The Art of Doing It Properly, speaking about the new performing arts center for London. 
And he wrote, I have consistently said for years that there have to be certain fundamental truths out there. And in consideration of how a performing arts center would be built in London, he listed these fundamental truths as the following. One, it would have to be led by city council. Without strong municipal government leadership, no other orders of government will be supportive. Community negati negativity will soon capture the discussion. It takes great courage to be a champion of new public facilities. And he says, two, get professionals involved. Council shouldn't be running the facilities, although the, the city will almost certainly own it. One of the best things we did was, was uh, get the, the brilliant Brian Ohl and the people at Global Spectrum to be a partner and run the now Budweiser Gardens. He also says, number three, there will be taxpayer money needed, large amounts. The project is probably in the 50 to $100 million range. There will need to be substantial local funding, fundraising, perhaps in the 15 $25 million range. Number four, there will need to be an annual operating subsidy. It is highly unlikely such a center would ever be in a break-even position. There aren't any in any other cities. Pre number five, pretty much all the great performance centers have been controversial and most of them go over budget. Again, if we're not prepared to accept that, let's not open the debate, he says. That's laying out the issue, London, bluntly, openly, and honestly. It sure sounds honest, doesn't it? I'm, I'm just still, still trying to wrap my head around the word truth well, when it comes to the, these are truths? Well, no, that's not, n no, I think they're more facts, but that's my thing. I couldn't find much that I would call a truth, despite his clear written assertion that these facts are fundamental truths. For example, when he says it has to be led by city council and there's a lot of community negativity, in truth, the public's always against the public or having its money extorted for non-essential, non-government functions. And the so-called courage spoken of is the willingness to not represent what the majority wants in this case. That's the truth. On an issue that's... We've seen it and we've seen the, the reports over and over again. You and I have a lot of experience yeah, in this. Pan Am Games, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, he talked about some of us were bruised when we fought to build, build a John Labatt Center. But can you imagine London today without it? When you think about the major world-class events it's attracted and the economic activity it has sparked, few today would argue the benefits of that project. Well, <coughs> sorry, actually, there are many who would argue it. They just don't have a voice in the major media outlets who see such projects and events as a source of their own income. The JLC, now the Budweiser Gardens, will never pay for itself out of its own earnings, but will be paid out of taxpayers' pockets. Worse, as Orlando Zampronia so clearly reminded us on this very show, the facility actually funnels millions and millions of dollars out of the community into the community where the performers who perform there actually live. That money doesn't stay here, which is merely another economic superstition based on keeping the money in the community falsehood. When he talks about getting professionals involved and that council shouldn't run the city, well, if government shouldn't run a business enterprise, then neither should it fund it. A professional, by any objective definition, would be someone from the private sector who's a professional because he earns his way, and earning always implies consent in the marketplace, not someone who's unaccountable to profit and loss and forcibly subsidized by an unwilling, non-consensual subsidizing force or funding force. That's the truth of that. And when he says there will be taxpayer money needed in large amounts of it, you know, what he's really saying is that this is a losing proposition from start to end in the middle. Hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars. It's, it's never ending. There will need to be an annual operating subsidy. Well, then they say, well, even after we lose hundreds of millions on the capital expenditures, we'll still be forced to pay for never-ending and always increasing subsidies. So, 
you know, there is the difference. And Hume, right, Hume writes that there's a reasoned argument to be made that such a center would move London forward, that in the 21st century, things that enhance our quality of life as a city pay off in helping to attract graduates, entrepreneurs, job creators, and the next generation of community leaders, investors, and new residents. We need more growth in London. But to appeal to the community, such a facility has to recognize the changing entertainment tastes of the public. It needs to be flexible, modern, and adaptable, end quote. Well, apparently it doesn't need to be affordable, voluntarily funded, and that doesn't seem to matter to Hume. If there is indeed a reasoned argument to do so, I haven't heard it yet. I haven't heard reasons, meaning, you know, you know, I have heard, rather, reasons which mean self-interested motivations, but no appeal to reason as such. Since when is it reasonable to throw away hundreds of millions of dollars on an entertainment venture under any circumstances? If there's so many benefits in doing so, why don't those directly benefiting put the money up front? So, you know, we come back around to it again. Truth is in the philosophy department, and in the end, we require philosophy to determine what's right and wrong, and that is a moral issue. One fundamental truth of morality is that it's immoral to initiate force against another human being. The failure to obtain consent in an act of sex is called rape. And what should it be called in an act of taxation? <laughs> you know, we don't have a word for that because we don't want to talk about that. Another fundamental truth is that government is a gun. Government is supposed to govern, not control or rule. When governments govern, then the collective gun is being used in the very moral act of self-defense and in the protection of life, liberty, and property. But when governments control or rule, then the collective gun is being used as an offensive weapon against the people. Governments are not created to get in the entertainment industry, though whenever they did, that was always the sign and symbol of that civilization's end and demise. As Rome spent itself into a public-spirited bankruptcy, the state build col built coliseums and hosted grand entertainment spectacles. I remember Ayn Rand illustrating this sad pattern of repetitive political history in her essay, The Monument Builders. And that's another truth you can take to the bank. But there you go. How are you going to decide? It's up to you to decide, as the listener, as always. Okay, the four Pickering A reactors were built with only one fast shutdown system. Now, the Atomic Energy Commission has since required all reactors like Pickering to have at least two fast shutdown systems. At Chernobyl, there was a dual mode failure. Now, in a dual mode failure, containment pressure can be expected to get higher than uh, containment chambers were designed to manage. Now, our source on site says that if the pressure keeps building up at this rate, we could have a second Chernobyl on our hands in a matter of hours. What we don't have, there's no hook to the story. A hook? Something people can relate to. There's not a single dead body. Are you telling me people can't relate to a China syndrome in their backyard? I didn't say that. China syndrome they can relate to. I like that. That's a hook. Because there was a movie there. People saw the movie. They understand what you're talking about when you say China syndrome. That's how you build a new story. You know what we should do? Rent five copies of the China syndrome. We should watch the movie. We're going to rent... Movies? We got I want to see how they cover the story in the movie. The problem with stories like this is way too much science and not enough production value. The audience can't relate to that. Shouldn't we do a double ender with the guy at the plant, maybe uh, pre-record it with Jim in the studio? The hot zone. Let's call this thing the hot zone. I love that. The hot zone was the Ebola virus. Very good. The hot zone was the Ebola virus. I need a title. Titles, 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 titles. Thank you.
I want something more gruesome in here. Something related to, to death. Nuclear and death. Something about mutation. People are afraid of that. Mutated babies? I love that. Yes. Can we get a shot of a mutated baby? Mmm. It'd be tight. Okay, forget the mutation. I got a better idea. You know what we do? We hold OJ's face here. OJ? Just leave OJ's face. On a nuclear story? Yes, yes. You see, people watched the OJ trial for a year. All the OJ circuits are there. We show OJ's face. People say, hey, we have to watch that. So that's, 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 that's OJ. All right? All right? Okay, kill it, kill it, kill it, kill it. See, that's the OJ theme. That's the theme I want. I want OJ, and I want a nuclear holocaust twist to it. Nuclear holocaust twist? Yes, yes. Don't you think OJ is a bit dated? No, 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 you don't understand. It, it, you know the cybernetic theory of the brain? Circuits built up, okay? People, all these circuits are built up from people watching the OJ trial, right? All I want to do, that's an addiction, that's a habit. I want to crank up that old addiction, right? Fire that old habit. Just send something new through the veins, right? Is this nuclear accident a real threat to Toronto? Could people die? My mother's visiting, and I could arrange to move her. Death, make death, 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 death. This is it. I get it now. Death. I want to hear death through this whole thing, okay? OJ's the alarm bell, gets people to listen, and then we lay in the death, the Holocaust. Are you talking about the nuclear, a nuclear holocaust or the Holocaust, Second World War? I like that. Better, World better, War. better. The other Holocaust. Good, okay, work on it. OJ, Holocaust, blend the two. Death, OJ, death, OJ. I'll be right back. Just work on it. That is very funny, Bob. Just work on it, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> That's from the newsroom, but not the newsroom from the United States in 2012. This is the newsroom back in 1997. The published. Canadian one. Yes. Yeah, put on the CBC. Absolutely brilliant. Which is funny because I'm going to be pillaring the CBC in my half of the show here. <laughs> but uh, maybe it's a good segue. We've entered an age where we as comrades and citizens must sift through our news and read between the lines of news and commentary just as the comrades and citizens of the Soviet Union did. There's little truth in the news these days, only Pravda. Ironically, <laughs> it's from the online site, just as The Onion and similar sources of satire where we can glimpse um, any real hint of truth. Quite comically, I've seen on uh, several occasions a posting from The Onion taken as reputable reporting of the news. Somebody would post an Onion article on Facebook, and people would go, how, how could they do that? This is terrible. <laughs> Thinking that it's actual truth. Yes. You know, it's, that's, how, that's how strange the truth is often out there. It's strange enough that you can't distinguish it from stuff on The Onion. Well, that's satire. why they often say truth is stranger than fiction. Yes, yeah. The point I can most personally resonate with in Jim Chapman's article that you brought up, Bob, is when he says, quote, it can take a great deal of work to assemble the information needed to make a rational assessment of an issue before the public, unquote. Uh, this is a fact often lost on the public when they turn to the trusted media for information and reasoned opinion. Take, for example, the recent effer right in the pussy willow. Uh, take out the willow. Now, I say it that way because that's the way Tom McConnell said it. And if he can say it, I can say it that okay. way, okay? Um, that's the issue that happened in Toronto recently. Um, the talk show lines were hot all morning yesterday with that story from Tom McConnell, CFRB 1010, AM 980. Um, but every news host I heard on the issue from those three stations got the facts wrong and hence were unable to come up with a clear picture of the truth. 
and make any moral judgments. The facts mists were these. Are you familiar with the... Uh... Not entirely. Maybe oh. I've got some facts wrong. I might be learning something here. Oh, okay. Well, one of I the heard facts... Tom McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> one of the facts he missed was the video in question was not live. It was taped and heavily edited, meaning that the reporter from City TV did not have to air the comments at all. Comments which only got their cachet from being aired on live TV. That was the whole point, is that mm. they have to be on live TV. Two, the man who actually said, F-R-I-T-P, um, was not any of the two men questioned by the reporter. The man who made the juvenile offending remark made them and then walked off never to be filmed again or talked again. The reporter, after some time, after an edit again, and that edit was you know, not even on the video, turned to a gathering of four men behind her and simply asked them if they were waiting to say the same thing. One man, the guy in the, in the glasses, said yes, and never actually swore at all during the conversation. Three, missing fact, the Hydro One employee doesn't enter the picture until halfway through the video and is seen walking by and apparently joins in on the conversation by saying that he thought the whole thing was effing hilarious. <laughs> he actually never said F-H-R-I-T-B, yeah. but just drops the F-bomb three times. He apparently is the man who lost his job over the incident. Was oh, that right now? This is news yeah. to me. See, I just had some news brought to me. He on just gave his opinion on the whole idea that it was hilarious okay. with an F-bomb, right? Okay. So now he loses his job. There's charges of sexual, um, well, allegations of sexual harassment and all that against that man. And he never said anything except that he agreed with the... Uh, hilarity of the situation. All this just confirms my own personal policy. I never react on the same day of a news story unless I know I have the facts because it's almost for sure you won't. I went through the video mm -hmm. three times to pick out these little subtleties that everybody's just missing, glossing over and not taking the time to look at it. Fourth thing that was missed. This um, FHRINTP trend is said to uh, any reporter with a microphone, male or female. It is not, nor was it ever directed solely at female reporters, as some hosts have suggested. Even our good friend Ezra Levant made that mistake, hmm. saying that it's directed at female reporters. No, it's directed at anybody with a microphone on live TV. Yeah, just trying to mess with you. By the way, the yeah. very first guy who made up this, this whole thing, this whole shtick, he, it was um, contrived. He posted a video to YouTube, made it look as if it was a live television report. It wasn't. He set the whole thing up and did it. And it went viral. And now everybody's doing it around the world. And, and it's, the thing is that it's only, it was only a made-up thing. That didn't come out, by the way, until months and months afterwards. Interesting. So now armed with these facts, you can make a better rational opinion or whether or not the Hydro One employee should be fired or whether or not the City TV reporter made the right decision to take this recording and even make an issue of it. The City TV reporting dovetails nicely with the recent release of Elizabeth May's speech at the National Press Gallery this weekend, this last weekend. What got lost in the fallout from the speech was that even though the event was being filmed by the CBC, that particular media outlet, as well as every other media who attended but one, sat on reporting May's vulgar references to oral and anal sex, her F-bomb-laden speech, and her parting comment at that convicted murderer Omar Cotter had more class than the whole effing cabinet. They only released the video and reported on the speech after a reporter from the Huffington Post tweeted a video clip from the event and people in response demanded to see the whole thing. 
So, May was treated with kid gloves by the media, even though her speech was more vulgar and offensive than this FHRITP guys on city TV recording. This particular event demonstrates the bias of the media that they have for those on the left. Consider, would the CPC and the rest of the crowd of journalists there at the press club and the reporters, would they have sat on such a speech if it had been given by Stephen Harper? Can you imagine? It's my opinion that not only would it have gotten top billing on the very next available newscast, Harper would have been vilified for his remarks and hounded until he had to resign. But Elizabeth May made the speech. A woman, a lefty, an environmentalist, leader of the Green Party of Canada, someone on the same side of the political aisle as the media. So, kid gloves. Now let's jump to a little more serious example of media bias in news reporting and commentary. On May 3rd, we had the Garland, Texas shooting where two Muslim terrorists were killed as they opened fire outside the Curtis Caldwell Center in Garland, Texas. Inside was the first annual Muhammad Art Exhibit and Contest presented by the American Freedom Defense Initiative. Now, of particular interest to Bob and myself was the fact that the winner of the Drama Hodman Contest was Bosch Faustin, who we had as a guest on our show number 232 back on January 12th of 2012. He was present at the event to receive his reward from show organizer Pamela Geller. Now, what followed from the attack was a series of commentaries by the major media outlets polarized as to who was to blame for the attack. Hello? (laughs) Comments made by the media actually considered to the left were typified by suggesting that the organizers of the event should be blamed for the deaths of the two men, for their provocation and insulting all Muslims by daring to promote the drawing of he who must not be drawn. (laughs) On the right, that of course being Fox News, we have commentators such as Judge um, Janine Pirro and Megyn Kelly, who gave impassioned rants defending free speech and laying the full blame for the shootings, of course, on the shooters and like-minded Sharia-loving Islamists. It's interesting to note, though, that uh, Fox News has a token leftist, one Bill O'Reilly, who took the same tack when his comrades, as his comrades by suggesting that people should follow Sharia dictates and not draw Muhammad. Now, I'm going to continue this um, and talk about the polarization of the media and when exactly it started. I have an exact date and I'm going to posit that the media became polarized on this single date in recent history. Be back right after this. So far, the two big stories are that downtown fire, which is still out of control, and that family missing in the forest was just found alive. (gasps) Thank God. I have been thinking about them so much. Can you imagine being stranded for three days trying to keep your kids safe? I mean, as a mom, I completely relate to that. Yeah, I think that's our lead. I'll take that one. (laughs) Sounds good. Uh, Kelly, you take the fire. Marsh, you've got three minutes tonight. Montana, 2.40. Anything else? Yes. Every time I need my intern, he is hanging out in the sports department. What? I never see him around there. He's late with my maps, his temperatures are spotty, and yesterday he completely missed the high-pressure system in the nation's midsection. (laughs) Where's my keyboard? Oh, I took it. You what? Oh, isn't this the day we just take whatever we want, you selfish... Look, if this is about the missing family story, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I had no idea you even wanted it. Oh, please. By the way, it isn't about the story. It's about the way you did it. I'll take that one. You were like a dingo in a maternity war. 
look, I, I didn't mean to come off that way. I'm sorry to hear you think that no, way. No, Chuck, I have a lot of work to do. Fine. Oh, big stuff happening with Kelly's fire story. Apparently, they found a bunch of bodies. We're gonna bump it to the lead. Damn it! <laughs> the humanity! <laughs> Listen, Ryan, you got your hands full handling all this breaking news. I'll tell you what, I'll let Kelly know. Kelly, I feel just terrible about what happened earlier. I <laughs> take the fire story. What? Please, I'll feel guilty all day otherwise. Chuck, what's going on? Nothing. You were clearly more passionate about the missing family story, and frankly, you'll do a much better job than I would. <laughs> there, I said it. You mean what I said an hour ago? an ugly shade on you, Kelly. <laughs> Chuck, you're doing the missing family story, right? No, actually, I, I just gave it to Kelly. She'll do a much better job with it, and let's face it, we must always put the show first. Okay, Kelly, the story's exploding. It turns out the father had to fight off a bear to save the whole family. <gasps> Damn it! <laughs> There's just too many bears. I've said it before. That's got to be our lead. We have the park ranger who found them on line three. This is unbelievable. This is the story a newscaster waits for their entire career and then gives it away. Yep. Hello, this is Kelly Carr. Ryan, you sure about making that story the lead? What about all those victims in that fire? Oh, yeah, good news about that. They turned out to be mannequins. Oh, come on! You've got the fire 95% contained. They're sending most of the firemen home. Hey, I think I can get the whole family in the studio for a live interview. Holy cow, we got to promo the heck out of this! <laughs> Coming up at 6, meet the man who fought off a bear to save his family. I'll have an exclusive live interview. And that downtown fire, still raging. 5% out of control. See you at 6, everybody. What's this? It's the bear story. Take it. Why? Because I've given it some thought, and I think I've been too judgmental, and we all have people we want to impress. What happened? The story fall apart? Turned out to be a hoax? Guy in a bear suit? Forget it. You know, I'm really sorry I tried to do something nice. No, wait, wait, wait. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. You're really just being nice? 30 seconds. Do you know how sad it is that you just assume everyone is as devious and conniving as you are? I had a rough childhood. In Greenwich, Connecticut? When you never have to ask for anything, you never learn how. We'll be right with you, folks. Kelly, please. I really need this. Oh, my God. The bear didn't salivate that much when he saw those people. <laughs> Ryan, I'm taking the lead. What? Uh, all right, everybody, the lead story is now Chuck's. All right, we're live in three. Coming up, a daring rescue today as a local man fights to defend his family against one of nature's deadliest predators. And milk expiration stamps, can't we trust them? <laughs> this and more next on News 9. 
And clear. We're back in 10. Okay, folks, listen. I'm gonna do a quick intro, and then we'll get to the interview, all right? I really appreciate this. I hope all your friends are watching. Four. Show them how we do things three. here in Hooterville, huh? <laughs> Good evening. It was like a scene out of a horror movie. The Robbins family, whose disappearance in the Allegheny Forest stunned the region, came face to face with a massive bear moments before their rescue. We are joined by this brave brood as they speak for the first time about their harrowing ordeal. Tell me, what were your thoughts when you first saw the bear? I was worried about protecting my family. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, did the bear attack your throat? No. Well, it's just that your voice is so... What? Uh, nothing. Nothing. Tell me what happened. Well, first, I tried to stare him down. Is that the way you really talk? Damn it, I fought off a frickin' bear! Mr. Robbins, please, I don't think this is a time for conflict. I think it's a time for helium. For healing! Kelly, <laughs> you want to jump in here? I just think Mr. Robbins is a hero, as I told him when we spoke before the show. Nice job. What? Sticking me with that dolphin in a wheelchair? <laughs> You wanted the lead, you got what you wanted. I was humiliated. Oh, then I got what I wanted. <laughs> what you did was completely unprofessional. Really, let's talk about today, okay? You stole a story, you lied, you manipulated me, did some more lying, lunch, then more manipulation. But you were worse. Oh, come on, you're just cranky because I beat you at your own game. And that, that, of course, was back to you. And I bet you every newsroom sounds like that off the ear. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> back to the news or back to polarization. The polarization of the media, in my opinion, is a phenomenon I'd suggest started precisely on the 2nd of August, 1990. This was the start of the Gulf War and the rise of CNN as a news outlet to be reckoned with. I can still remember being glued to the TV as CNN correspondents John Holloman and Peter Arnett and CNN anchor Bernard Shaw relayed reports from Baghdad's Al-Rashid Hotel as the airstrikes began, practically scooping the big three established American news stations, CBC, ABC, and NBC. CNN's meteoric rise in credibility paralleled a gradual but complete switch of its editorial stance from centrist, well, somewhat centrist, to extreme left. Not wanting to be scooped again by the big three, um, they followed suit in an effort to gain the audience now claimed by CNN. Six years after CNN's rise to power and its shift to the left, two new news outlets were formed, MSNBC and Fox. MSNBC, perhaps in direct philosophic competition with Fox, chose to outdo the left-leaning big three and CNN with commentary which can only be described as loony left, progressive, and socialist in the extreme. 
Now, at the same time, in 1996, Fox Channel was created beginning the polarization of the political ideologies of the now six big American news outlets. Fox is unabashedly conservative in its viewpoint. It is this polarization, I believe, which has left vacant the more calm, centered, reasonable, rational center of the news and commentary in the United States. Fortunately, at the same time, viewers lost any mature sophistication in its news coverage um, the day the Internet became a source of news for many, including myself. Now, instead of relying on a single trusted news anchor and commentator like a Walter Cronkite in the United States or a Lloyd Robertson here in Canada, many of us are turning to social media, Twitter, Facebook, and our large circle of friends to post articles of shared interest and like-minded opinion. Just as Jim Chapman says in his article, quote, regular readers generally get what they're looking for and in support of their preferences and prejudices, unquote. He was speaking of newspaper readers, but the same observation applies to any media outlet, I believe. Now, we generally gravitate to media opinion which mirrors our own. Conservatives would read the National Post, and liberals would read the Toronto Star, everyone being comforted knowing that there is a national voice which echoes their own. With the fracturing of news reporting and the concomitant loss of journalistic integrity, it is no wonder that the general population of Canada and the United States but the U.S. in particular, is becoming jaded in all things political. The left is free to disrupt international events such as the G20 summit as we become inured to their increasing violent tactics on social, of social upheaval. Certain aboriginal gangs are given free reign to cause mayhem with transportation, occupy public buildings, and maim and loot in Caledonia as our media focus on their plight as victims rather than the violence of the, they commit. The police are being seen as thugs rather than protectors as videos emerge on the internet of the rare instances of police brutality, overshadowing the more common proper policing which goes on daily. Such instances of police brutality are focused on by the media and the fires of malcontent are fueled by political pundits blaming such brutality on race and privilege. A point of view I would find almost impossible to remember hearing prior to 1996. Not that such acts of brutality never existed, but such commentary by the media was never heard unless justified and substantiated. Today it seems that any time a white cop shoots a black man, his motivation is always racist. In the recent death in Baltimore of Freddie Gray, NBC news anchor Melissa Harris Perry had this to say. Listen to this, Bob. You won't believe it. Quote, these three so-called black Baltimore cops that have been charged in killing Freddie Gray must have a substantial amount of white blood in them, their ancestry oh and within their upbringings. It's just not possible for black police officers to commit such an act on another African-American wealth without their having a large amount of European ancestors, that is, being white African-Americans, unquote. What do you think of that? I most racist comment I've ever heard said, uh, is that person still got a job? Oh, yeah. Well, see, to me, that person would be gone. Yeah. Now, for such a blatant racist remark to become a popular, from a, from a if major... If you can get away with that, then you can use the N-word on the air, as oh, far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, for such a blatant racist remark to come from a major television news anchor is appalling, as you suggested. The fact that she's allowed to show up for work the next day is worse than her comments. It gives no, I, I sanction to those comments. This one comment is indicative of the degree to which news and commentary in the United States media is assisting in destroying that nation. I just can't imagine what the police officer who's black, 
who was in that position three might have thought of that, or three of them, you know, or any one of them, yeah. you know, that, that would just be outrageous. It is outrageous. Canada's not much of a difference. All news outlets deny their obvious biases. Some quite genuinely believe that they're being objective in the reporting. They are, of course, delusional. Bias exists everywhere, even here on Just Right. That's not just self-deprecation, by the way. My set of values differ from most every other person who sits behind a microphone or in front of a television camera, I believe. While I try to get as many objective facts as necessary to make a moral judgment on issues of the day, it always comes down to the values I hold, which determine my bias. I hold human life and happiness as values. I hold purpose and personal ambition as values. With these values and others, I am bound to make moral pronouncements which differ from others on the airwaves, which hold, who hold might hold the environment as a value above humans, or laziness as a depravity, as a virtues, or race as a significant determinant in passing moral judgment. So yes, here it's just right, we have biases. But we defend them, and we do not hide them or deceive you. We put our values and biases out there for your consideration, your criticism, and your comments. Which, by the way, you can go to our website and give us your comments at justrightmedia.org by emailing us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to us on iTunes. So, until you, uh, until next week, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right. What else, Bob? Think right, do right. right. Main thing, be right back here. Get the facts. Yeah. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Tragedy, grief, and outrage today after a raging inferno guts a downtown row house. Officials say... Cut! What was that? Too soft? Way too soft. Yeah, yeah. No, I felt that one myself. Yeah. Let, me, let me try that one again. Yeah. Whenever you're ready. Tragedy, grief, and out. God! What? You're putting me to sleep here. Come on, I want to see some attack. You've got some big words to work with. Fire, outrage, courage, house. Punch them, make me feel it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Punch the words, that's good. Let's do this. You got this one. <clears throat> Tragedy. God! What? <laughs> All right, maybe this is a big mistake. Uh, you're fine with your little stories out in the field, but this is not right for you. But I, I just need a little... No, no, I've been doing this for years. You just don't have it. But we just started. It doesn't matter, kid. You're not hungry enough. It's just not there. Okay, break it down, Bobby. We're done. No, we're not. I didn't bust my ass for 15 years to be told I'm not hungry enough. I want my shot and no one's taking it away from me. That... Right there! Go! <laughs> Tragedy, grief, and outrage today after a raging inferno.